1 Chronicles 29 verse 10. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor, for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom you are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are aliens and strangers in your sight as were all our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. O Lord our God, as for all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things I have given willingly and with honest intent. And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. O Lord, God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Israel, keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. And give my son Solomon the wholehearted devotion to keep your commands, requirements and decrees and to do everything to build the palatial structure for which I have provided. Then David said to the whole assembly, Praise the Lord your God. So they all praised the Lord, the God of their fathers. They bowed low and fell prostrate before the Lord and the King. Amen. Let's pray. Father, may uh, these words I speak uh, come from you, and may they be a, both a challenge and an encouragement, not least to myself, but to the other people here. And may we leave here not only knowing that we have met with the living God, but with uh, uh, something more to do to show the community out there that you are real and that we are relevant. And we ask this through Christ our Lord in the power of the Spirit. Amen. And tonight, as you know, we delve into the book of uh, 1 Chronicles. And... Uh, this is the, the, the greatest and perhaps last public prayer of uh, the great King David. It's a, a fabulous piece of scripture, at least to my eyes when I read it. I'm sure that you'll probably agree. And it tells us a lot about the God we as Christians, we claim to know and to serve and to love. As well as how we are to respond to him. And originally, 1 and 2 Chronicles were just the one book. They are the final book of the uh, Jewish canon, and they were probably written by Ezra, uh, and was also known as the events of the days, or the, uh, the things that were omitted, which would suggest that Chronicles was to be regarded as an extension of the book of Kings and of Samuel. 
It's a book which, as I said, was written for those from the nation of Israel who are in exile. And it was to remind them of the spiritual journey, the journey of history of Israel as a nation. For us, though, and not the least I, it issues, issues certain challenges to us. I'll be reading from the authorised version. I'll bet you'd be pleased to know. It's its 400th year anniversary this year. I'm only 300 years old. Young me can explain how that works. And as I read it, you will see just how much of its language has entered into our language and its influence on the development of English as a language is quite remarkable. Even Richard Dawkins would maybe, well, now he's miserable, he won't agree. So here is the great King David. Now here in chapter 29 we have King David in his final days before handing over the crown to his son Solomon, his great son Solomon. David's no longer the shepherd boy who, who, who killed a Goliath with just a sling and a stone. He's at the end of his life. He wanted to build the temple himself, but God told him in no uncertain terms, no. In 1 Chronicles 28 verse 3, we read, You are not to build a house for my name, because you are a warrior, and you have spilled blood. The building of the temple was to be ultimately achieved by his great son uh, Solomon to do. So what has happened so far according to the chronicler? In the, the previous verses 1 to 9, uh, before our reading, we see how David has given publicly a great deal of wealth, including uh, gold, silver and other personal possessions for this building, the great temple which will be the house of God. This was to serve as an active encouragement for all the other people to also give generously, not only of their material possessions, but also as we read from 28 verse 21, their talents and craftsmanship as well. This house of God would be a community effort. It wasn't going to be a solo project. King and pauper alike, giving generously and honestly with integrity. So here is David, a man who despite his many faults, and he did have a lot of them, we read about them, and yet he is still described as a man who is after God's own heart. Here he is, Israel's greatest king, saying this prayer of intimate praise and adoration to his God in front of the assembled throng. This prayer, like his gift of gold, etc., could be said to be David's legacy to the nation of Israel, to Solomon, and by extension, also to us. And as I read this, I get a wow factor about God. Look how David talks of God. You can tell that God has had a vibrant and intimate relationship with this God, the God of his youth and the God of his old age. He piles up the metaphors. It's almost as if he gets lost for words. He speaks of God personally, Thou, thee, you, yours, our, I, my. David praises God for who God is. And verse 10 sets the scene. 
Blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. God is their Father. He is everlasting. Before Israel was, God was. Always is and always will be. He was to be their God and they were to be his people. And God takes care of them as a father takes care of children, giving generously, protecting them, and always being available for guidance and wisdom. Isn't that what good fathers do? And verse 11 is perhaps the central verse of the prayer. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. The whole emphasis is on the Lord God. How much of our prayer life is on God and how much is on us? And God is talking about God's greatness, God's power, God's glory, God's victory, God's majesty. All are yours, O God, throughout the earth and the heavens. Yours is the kingdom, O God. Not ours, but yours, O King. For they are attributes of a great King. God's greatness is vast. It's incomparable and unfathomable. God's power is that of a warrior, almighty, overwhelming, yet also enticing and alluring. All power comes from him to every dependent creature in all creation. God's glory is the exuberant and ecstatic magnificence of his very being. The core of his being is his glory. And victory shows God as an all-conquering hero, transcendent and supreme, to whom all creatures and creation are subject. His victories are irrefutable and undeniable, His uncompromising majesty symbolises a dignity, a regency, a splendour and awesome magnificence. Is this your God? Because that's my God. For the last month, I've had this one song in my head by Chris Tomlin, How Great Is Our God. And I've had that for the last month. And for someone who has memory problems, that's pretty much of an achievement. So these things, greatness, power, glory, victory and majesty are essential attributes of this God who is uh, indelible, immutable, uh, unchangeable and permanent. God is a king in greater splendour than any of the excesses of uh, Louis XVI. And if you don't know who Louis XVI is, Google him. You'll see his extravagance and his demise also. And this God is a mighty king to be exalted above all things and he is to be held in a rightful place, high and lifted up. As for the kingdom, well, whose is that? Is it Israel's? Nah. Is it David's? No? I was was told there's going to be a couple of hecklers here tonight. No? Oh, okay. It's not Hyde Park Corner. Been there, done that. No, the kingdom is God's. And it's his alone. His kingdom is of total magnificence and greater than the Roman Empire to come. Even greater than uh, that of Alexander who when he ran out of worlds to conquer was in despair. Even greater than the British Empire of which was said that the sun would never set. Ha! 
And Jesus here is probably quoting this verse in what we call the Lord's Prayer. So David's words resonate down through history, even to today, even if we don't know it. In this context, however, David sees kingdom to symbolise the fact that the building materials, the amassed wealth, never did belong to Israel, but rather they were God's alone. God's kingdom shows his universal influence, his authority and his universality. Everything is God's. It's all his. Nobody can say they own ultimate possession of anything. The only reason, to paraphrase David, we have this amassed wealth to build a temple is because we have the leasehold to it. God owns the freehold. It's all his and because of his generosity we can build him this house. And not only these natural, these uh, material possessions, but also the imagination, ingenuity, the craftsmanship, the skills, and the talents that went into building it. Well, they all came from God as well. So you craftsmen, bless God because God has blessed you with skilled hands to work on his house. Your strength is ultimately from the unlimited resources of strength from God. This is no impersonal statue or idol like the surrounding nations. This is the living God, personal God, awesome in all things, yet willing to be involved in a personal relationship. This is the God who through the Levitical law wants to live with his people of joy to be their living God. Well, that's what I get out of Leviticus, but you already know that. And this God is the light of all things good, bright and blessed. He is the greatest of the greatest, truly incomprehensible, yet also knowable. David is in utter adoration of this great God. I wonder if David knew that this physical temple itself was only ever going to be a temporary measure until the coming of the Messiah and his ascension. But that's speculation. When God would no longer dwell in a house made of gold and of stone, but rather live in a, in a house made of flesh and of heart. It is out of this wonderfully glorious grace that the Lord God Almighty gave these gifts to his people in the first place. And the cheerful, sacrificial response from his people in gratitude to him was remarkable. All these things were given cheerfully and willingly. The possessions, the gold, the silver, the skills, the power and the strength, all in service of the great God of Israel, the great uh, God and Father of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses and the other patriarchs. Surely this is a God worthy of all praise, worship and life commitment. Each person praises differently and in different ways. So let's rejoice when we see other people praising God differently from the style that we accept. That's the wow factor of God. A God who is abundant in greatness and power and glory and victory and majesty. Now let's look together at David himself. All the attributes of praise given here by David to God could, with a great deal of justification, I think, also be said of David himself, as well as of Israel. 
Israel at the time were a strong nation. And David, quite rightly, still on the throne. Israel's greatest king, full of power, might and majesty. But no, what does David say in verse 14? Who am I and what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? For all things come of thee and of thine own have we given thee. No, it's all about God for David. He's learnt that lesson down through the years. He would say that I'm only here because of him. David has been reflecting on his whole life from the time he defeated the Philistine only armed with a a sling and a stone. He sees his past failures, the utter depravity of his life during those times but also of his repentant heart that wrote Psalms such as Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 as he comes before a, a holy God. And the end of verse 14 again. All things come of thee, and of thine own have we given thee. And this resonates down through history, in churches worldwide, as the, as the prayer after the offering. And David exhibits great humility before God, and, and sets an example for his son Solomon, and the other Israelites to follow. And then in verse 15, For we are strangers before thee, and sojourners, or partakers, as were all of our fathers, our days on the earth, are as a mere shadow, and there is none abiding. David acknowledges that Israel were only tenants in the promised land, on a leasehold agreement. They were a nation of uh, sojourners, travelling a journey uh, from their foundation as a nation onwards. It is like David was saying to the Lord, we're here temporarily, but you, O God, you, O Lord, are permanent. You are here. What an amazingly generous God you are, giving with such exceeding grace to us. Who are we? And David confesses they are but transient and aliens in the land that God had given them. It's an image tying them to the the patriarchs as they wandered in the wilderness, living only on what God had provided for them as they looked for the promised land. It's also an image of an acknowledgement that all life is supremely dependent upon God and God alone. God was to be their God and they were to be his people to be shining as a light to all nations as God's representatives. And here, here is the mighty King David, bowing in utter humility before a great God of glory and majesty. A God so great that yet he adores, he wants to serve and he wants to worship. He knew that his whole life had been one of dependence upon God for all things and David was exhibiting this before his people. David's prayer was that the the people of Israel would continue to depend on God but also exhibit that dependence and show how God had supplied them graciously. Not only for David but also for the chronicler. He was recording this for the people of Israel when they were in exile. 
He was reminding them of their past. The chronicler reminds the people in exile to be utterly dependent upon God for all and everything. For the chronicler, the building of the temple was more a matter of the heart and built upon the faith of God to supply. This faith was expressed in the gifts to make the building real, made of gold, silver, wood and other metals. It was due to God's generosity alone the temple would be built and had nothing to do with David and his people. It would have been a tremendous temptation, would it not, to be filled with boastful pride about it? Maybe old hairy legs was whispering in David's ear, come on, you can take a bit of pride, can't you? Oh, by the way, for those of you who don't know, old hairy legs is my pet name for Satan. You can ask me later how I get it. It was a test of people's hearts to see if they really did love their God. And then in the final words of this prayer, we see David praying for unreserved and enthusiastic giving from the people. He changes from acknowledgement to petition. And in verses 18 to 20, David exhorts an outpouring of generosity from his people, from a heart filled with thanks, a heart acknowledging that dependence on God for all things, a heart and life of loyal obedience to Almighty God. Solomon also was to be wholeheartedly obedient and wholeheartedly devoted to this God. Yet we know that he fell several hundred times. And a heart filled with peace with God is a life totally devoted to him, exhibited with joyful giving. That's what David was praying for the people and for his great son Solomon. It's also what the chronicler was expecting from the people in exile as he recounts this to them. It was to be a a community effort of devotion and obedience to a God who was almighty, majestic, glory and exuberant and one on whom they could depend for all facets of human life, for the very uh, oxygen that they breathe and everybody giving what they could out of riches or poverty. So firstly we saw the wow factor of this God for David. A God who exudes greatness, power, glory, victory and majesty. And then we saw David's utter adoration and dependence upon this God. The God that he knows intimately. So finally, what does all this have to do with us? How often do we receive from our God but not thank him for it. We are to be thankful for every good gift that he gives us. We offer praises and thanks to him for who he is and for his generosity and grace towards us. And tonight's Bible passage was a superb piece of thanksgiving. When was the last time you thanked God for all the things that he has given you? How can we put this thanks and praise into action? Well, let's see, well, reasonably quickly. Firstly, I'm convinced that there are enough wealthy Christians uh, sitting in churches in the West who could make significant donations and virtually eradicate a lot of the poverty in the third, in the developing world and indeed their own countries. This would be active 
Christian giving on a radical scale. In biblical stories such as this from 1 Chronicles 29, it's always those who had the most who gave the most as an example to others of God's generosity. After all, God owns it all anyway and it's only given as a loan from God and uh, not a transference of ownership. And as Christians, we're to desire to mature spiritually, growing in adoration, obedience and commitment to God. This God that we proclaim to serve. This God we proclaim to worship and know. And perhaps the greatest indicator of that today concerns our giving. Giving is to be done wholeheartedly and cheerfully. It's also not so much about how much is given, but how much is left after the giving. And the attitude behind it is it given with integrity. And God looks behind the amount that is given to the motive and attitude behind it. All our money and possessions belong to him anyway. As we have seen, uh, so giving is to be uh, in response to this. We have it on leasehold, not freehold. Our money and possessions are a leasehold agreement, not a freehold one. And many prayers seemingly go unanswered because God is waiting for people to be obedient to him so he can answer the prayer of other people. And we're to be generous with everything we have, not just in the area of money, but with all our lives, every aspect. We all have time, we all have information, we all have knowledge of some sort, we all have imagination. Granted, some of us may have a more lurid imagination than others. We all have gifts, we've all got talents. We can't keep them to ourselves. We're to share them, that's the purpose. God gave them to us. Now that may well take radical action to do, but radical action and radical giving is what we are called to do, is it not, as we read the New Testament, as we read the book of Acts? God is giving everything so that you and I may live and have life and life in abundance. And so by caring and giving, we reflect that. Let's be radical church together and encourage others to be likewise. But as we've seen and we've heard, it's not only about giving money and resources. Giving is also to include our skills, our information, our imagination and our knowledge. Remember the priests and craftsmen were waiting to give in the building and of service within the temple. Churches, particularly these days, need to capture the imagination of those looking for a church home and get them involved. Involvement in such a way that it builds up commitment to God and to a growing admiration of him and a commitment to the church. And if people are involved, they will stay. They won't slip out the back door, no matter if you lock it. And if training for service doesn't occur, and churches are also to be training grounds, then commitment and dedication to God is likely to be utterly diminished. Too many people move around churches because they're discouraged at the churches that they used to attend regularly. I know, because I talk to them. They come to me. And if the same people do the same thing in a church year after year, 
that local church will eventually die out. Each local church is only one generation away from closing its doors permanently. Are you aware of that? So let's get training, folks. That's as much to the elders as anyone else. Thank you. We'll have our accountability session again soon. And giving, as we saw in tonight's passage, is also a community affair. The church is to be a community, both involving those within the church and those outside of it. It's a community where the strongest members support the weakest members, not only in spiritual aspects, but also physically. Our leaders here at PBC, and they didn't pay me to say this, they give demonstrably, I think, including their time, their possessions, their money, well, maybe not their money, their knowledge and their wisdom. I know, because I badger them. I nag them, actually, but then I'm from the bush. But as we also saw tonight, it's not just for leaders to give. Giving is to be for everybody who's in a church. Every church, as I said, has a fantastic array of knowledge, of wisdom, of possessions and imagination. If one person can't imagine it, I'm sure that at least someone else in the congregation can imagine it. Or is that just my imagination? So let's share that this whole thing, this knowledge, this collective knowledge that we have with those people out there who think that we're just a bunch of confused nutters who come into a building on Sunday to have a jolly good time to talk with an imaginary being. A bit like the atheist prayer line where you ring and nobody answers. And too often we're found turning a blind eye to the suffering of other people where the necessities of life are in sparse existence. Too often we neglect to give up our personal space uh, our time, our imagination, our information and money generously to help the poor and the needy in our local, national and global communities. And by doing this giving collectively, we will show that our faith and our collective faith as well as our individual faith is both real and relevant. That's what those folks out there want. They want to know that our faith is real and they want to know how it's going to be relevant to them. That's what people tell me. And so we need to be seen to be radically giving to all. Not just, as I said, of our money or our possessions, but also our time, our imagination, our collective wisdom, our collective knowledge, our practical help, our care and our love. And let's show our relevance to our local community and, uh, and not be seen as just a curious gathering of people meeting on a Sunday who could be down the pub. And if you have ideas of how you can help the church here at PBC, Bruce is always available. I'm sure that Craig would like to talk to you, wouldn't you, Craig? Yep. And Dennis and Jim. Adam's a bit busy, probably. So go see them and talk to them about it. Nag them about it. They might tell you to go away, but you don't know, do you? I know that some people like to think that church is a port where it's all safe and secure, but you can't stay in a port forever. Sometimes you've got to be out on the open sea, which is where I like to be. And I come here on Sundays for a bit of safety. 
So if I could summarise all this up in just one sentence, it would be something like this. To paraphrase, JFK. Ask not just what your God can give to you, which is most of our prayers, isn't it? But also ask what great things you can do and give to your God for his ultimate glory and majesty. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are such a God of awesome majesty and you have that wow factor. Your exuberant glory, your extravagant greatness, your unchangeable grace. Help us this week as we go out from this building uh, to communicate that to others in, in words and actions. And as we come now to, to worship you in the final few songs, may the, the words and thoughts of our hearts be as pure, sweet-smelling incense to you. And we ask all this through Christ our Lord, in the power of the Spirit who indwells us, and we have fellowship with you through him. And we pray this. Amen.